Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dadder's Law says any useful idea about the future should at first seem ridiculous. And that's really important to hold in our minds, right? Because, you know, on one hand, it's easy to prepare for futures that sound normal, that feel like a kind of continuation of today, but it's the weird stuff that catches us off guard. Is, is Dadder's Law trying to shock people or knock people out of the normalcy bias? Exactly. Okay. So we all have this normalcy bias. Our brain is designed to make sense of the world in a way that doesn't overwhelm us. And so it, it wants to believe that patterns that have been true in the past or things that are true today will continue to be so because if we're constantly waking up every day being like, oh, how do things work now? Like, oh, what's going on? Um, it's too stressful, it's too overwhelming. And so the brain normally assumes things will continue as they are. Um, but what that means is it can be very hard to kind of wake up and realize this thing that used to be true is no longer true or this assumption I had is no longer helpful. Jane McGonigal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to have you here. So futurist, game designer, two things that I am obsessed mm -hmm. with. So <laughs> when I heard that your new book was coming out about that imaginable, uh, I was immediately hooked and intrigued. I think that we're living through an incredibly disruptive, radical transformation mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about that in the book, this idea of future shock. Mm -hmm. um, Walk us through the whole idea of being a futurist, because mm. you're a futurist not like in a, um, oh, I'm in my garage building technology, but you're a futurist in a way that I think everybody needs to wrap their head around. Mm. Um, you, you distressingly accurately predicted what we just went through in 2020 with COVID. So walk us through what it means to be a futurist and how on earth in 2010, you detailed the things that we just lived through. Mm, yes. Okay. So much to chew on. Well, maybe <laughs> maybe we should start with future shock, which yeah. um, you reference um, because people might be wondering, you know, what is future? Is like where does this come from? Um, so in 1968, Alvin Toffler wrote a book called Future Shock, and this is sort of the birth of futures thinking. And he was looking around society and noticing that people seemed overwhelmed by the rapid pace of change. And, you know, in the 1960s, it was a very tumultuous time. There like was- literally, people getting shot, like yes, crazy. Yes, social upheaval, new technologies, big economic disruptions. And he was observing the, the psychological impacts of change happening so fast and people feeling 
anxiety, feeling overwhelmed, feeling like there's too much uncertainty. They couldn't confidently plan for what was next. And he theorized that this would have a society scale toll on our collective well-being. And so he tried to invent ways of imagining what might be next, first of all, so that we could be ready for anything and not be shocked, right? And secondly, so that maybe we could learn how to be more in control of the change that happens. If we can see change starting, then we could make our own decisions about, do I want to accelerate this change? I love where the future is going. Let's make it faster. I want to be a part of it. Or do I want to try to to stop it, slow it down, reverse it, mitigate the harms, you know, control the risks. And from that 1968 book, this whole movement emerged. And I got involved uh, with futures thinking after I finished my PhD studying the psychology of games. And one thing I learned, I was actually scouted to be a futurist, like uh, the really? Institute for the Future, which is uh, the oldest futures organization in the world. They look for people who are actually doing things like in their garage, inventing new technologies. Um, you probably know Alan Kay's quote uh, that the best way to predict the future is mm. to invent it. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to invent new genres of games that would allow gamers to apply their skills to real world problems. And the Institute said, well, you know, sounds like you've got an idea for how the future could be different. Come, come make some games with us and see what happens, which is how I wound up uh, in 2010 running. I think that was my third big future forecasting game, uh, a simulation where tens of thousands of people, the one we did in 2010 had 20,000 people living their lives almost like a role-playing game, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons around a table, but instead of being around the table, you're around uh, a social network online and you're imagining how you would react to different future crises. And that game, Evoke, we asked them to imagine a respiratory pandemic that started in China, that was complicated by misinformation, conspiracy theories by a group called Citizen X, which of course sounds like uh, QAnon. And there were historic wildfires on the West Coast and there was supply chain collapses. And we just asked people, you know, what would you do? How would you try to help? Um, this was the third big game that I did this. And, uh, you know, not only were the forecasts, the scenarios that we asked people to imagine turned out, because that game was set 10 years in the future. So we were imagining 2020. So bananas. Um, but, but the things that people said they would do, people really did. And it's what makes me excited about this art form, these social simulations is, you know, people predicted they would go to church even if they were contagious because it was so important to their identity. And that turned out to be the big super spreading risk. And people said, I'm going to go to work. You can tell me to isolate or stay home, but I need to make money. So if the government doesn't pay me to stay home, I'm going to go to work. Even if I'm sick, we saw that happening. And people who couldn't afford to work from home were more likely to get sick. Um, moms said, uh, hmm, wait, if schools are shut down because of these issues, how am I going to take care of my kids? Am I going to become the teacher? Like, am I going to not be able to work? And of course, we saw a mass exodus of women from the workplace. So, you know, there were all these social consequences that experts in public health and epidemiology did not predict. But our players, just ordinary people, knew what they would need or knew how a crisis would affect them personally. And when you collect that from 1,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 people, you can actually predict pretty accurately 
things that otherwise would be hard to anticipate. So this is an idea that is hiding in plain sight that is more transformational than I think people realize. So when I started reading your book, my wife and I play a game in business that we call No Bullshit, What Would It Take? Which you call ridiculous at first. And I have the chills. Like hearing you say that, I was like, oh my God, like that's exactly what Lisa and I are doing when we have these crazy big ideas that we wanna do something insane. Um, and you have to get yourself into a, well, I look at it as a problem solving mindset. So there are of course a million reasons why we're never gonna you know, have our kids come home from school, that would be ridiculous. Well, it's ridiculous at first, and then you begin to realize you may be thrust into a position where it's the only sensible solution. Mm -hmm. And if you stop at it's ridiculous, then you never get to that next thing, which actually allows you to predict the future pretty accurately, as you said, when you start looking at a whole group of people. But as people begin to understand, okay, hold on, if I actually get myself past the fact that this is self-evidently ridiculous, and now just no bullshit. What would it take? What would it look like? How, how will this play out? And they run that scenario. You can find, I think of it in terms of solutions, you can find solutions in business that other people, because they stop at the ridiculousness, they never even think through to find that there actually are all these really interesting ways that you could do it. But in your context, if you stop at that's so ridiculous, that will never happen, then you get blindsided by 2020. Yes. So how do we, and I, obviously I've read the book, so I know the punchline, but how do people get into that state where they actually can essentially sit in the future? Mm. Oh, I mean, there's so many habits that are good for that. Um, I want to pick up on, you know, you've introduced this phrase that I love, ridiculous at first. And that comes from something that professional futurists call Datter's Law, after Jim Datter, who's another founder of the field. And Datter's Law says any useful idea about the future should at first seem ridiculous. And that's really important to hold in our minds, right? Because, you know, on one hand, it's easy to prepare for futures that sound normal, that feel like a kind of continuation of today, but it's the weird stuff that catches us off guard. Is, is Datter's Law trying to shock people or knock people out of the normalcy bias? Exactly. Okay. So we all have this normalcy bias. Our brain is designed to make sense of the world in a way that doesn't overwhelm us. And so it, it wants to believe that patterns that have been true in the past or things that are true today will continue to be so because if we're constantly waking up every day being like, oh, how do things work now? Like, oh, what's going on? Um, it's too stressful. It's too overwhelming. And so the brain normally assumes things will continue as they are. Um, but what that means is it can be very hard to kind of wake up and realize this thing that used to be true is no longer true or this assumption I had is no longer helpful. And so, so we want to have these ridiculous at first ideas, one, so that we can shake ourselves from our normalcy bias, and also because the kinds of futures that we might want to make, they might be so transformative that other people say, you know, well, that's unimaginable or that's unthinkable. Um, you know, a lot of people who got involved, for example, with the universal basic income movement, this idea that people just get money for nothing is so ridiculous. But we're able to prove with pilot studies and capture people's imagination to actually, you know what, let's actually take this seriously, this ridiculous at first idea. Um, and so we also want to think of, of ideas that just sound absurd because 
the kind of change we want is probably going, if, it, if we're thinking boldly and we're trying to really make a difference in the world, people will dismiss it. Um, but should we talk about like, my favorite habit or technique yes, for, for coming up with ridiculous at first ideas? So uh, I created this brainstorming game called 100 Ways Anything Can Be Different in the Future. And it's really easy. You just make a list of things that are true today. And then you, without overthinking it, just rewrite every fact so that the opposite is now true. And then you look for clues that might explain why this upside down fact could be true. So I run this game with, with all kinds of organizations and communities. A few weeks ago, I was doing it with local government leaders in the state of California. So mayors and city managers and state legislators. And so one of the facts about the future, we're thinking about the future of democracy. One of their facts was, well, there's a minimum voting age in California, right? Like you have to be 18 to vote in elections. So we're coming up with this as a fact, and then we just, without thinking, just rewrite what's, okay, what's the upside down version of this? There is no minimum voting age. Okay, so you just make these, make these facts. Then you have to go look for clues. Well, one, what does it mean? There's no minimum voting age. So like babies can vote? Okay. What we do as futurists is we come up with these ridiculous at first statements and, and then we just start typing them into Google. We type them into social media and we, we look for people who are talking about these ideas or doing them. You can go into Google Scholar. Um, and it turns out people are actually advocating at policy centers, serious intellectuals, that we should lower the minimum voting age to zero because young people have the most on the line. And they're gonna to have to live their whole lives with the decisions that we make, especially around climate action. And so now we've got all these government leaders thinking like, oh, California, you know, minimum voting age zero. What would that mean? And I always, when we come up with these ideas, I always ask like, well, what's your emotional reaction? Mm -hmm. Would you be excited to wake up in the future? Would you be worried? I had no idea what they would say. I thought maybe they would really hate this future because it, it's so weird. And they really liked it. Most of them rated on a scale. We do like a scale of one to 10. How excited are you? And they were like seven, eight, nine. So I'm like, I'm getting ready. Just even for me, that's a signal of change that, that people working in government were so intrigued by such a strange idea. And how do you, because one thing that I liked in your book is you encourage people to um, don't just Pollyanna, don't just negative think. How do you get people to balance that? Because like in California, mm. if I run the thought experiment, it's a one party state, I get why they would love it. But if you have a more contentious state, then it becomes who has the most offspring. Because of course, if you have a three-year-old, they're gonna vote the way that you want them to. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you help people navigate second and third order consequences as they think through mm a future that they want to create? Mm. So that's a great question. First of all, you could definitely crunch some numbers and you could try to figure out um, like what would shift? How would the power of balance shift? Um, running thought experiments on that already. Um, it seems like younger voters probably would really change just the political landscape. I mean, if, if, if you're having, especially, you know, kids are going to vote the way their parents want, but teenagers, preteens, it does kind of change um, what what might become central election issues, which is, I think is, is exciting, but it might not pan out in the ways that we think. Um, but we do, we actually, we have a tool called Draw Out Consequences, where we do basically chains of causes and effects. Okay, if this happened, then what would happen? And that happened, then what would happen? And you try to create these, these chains um, to get to kind of surprising outlier consequences. But 
the, the simplest thing you can do whenever I have a scenario is before we start playing with it. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Everybody has to 
think of one thing that they would be excited about or one thing that could go right in this future, something to be better in this world, and one thing that could go wrong or one thing they would be worried about. So if we have like 500 people coming to play with a scenario, we instantly have a list of like 500 possible you know, benefits, but also 500 risks. And then that sets the groundwork for, as we try to draw out these consequences, people can say like, oh, okay, let me think about that. Well, what might happen then? And so we do try to have this balance of positive and shadow imagination because really any future is going to have complications, but also perhaps unexpected benefits where people use it as an opportunity to create positive change, even with the pandemic. I mean, many people are trying to use this as an opportunity to rethink how we do things might wind up having lasting positive impacts on work or learning. Now, one thing that I know you've looked at, certainly on the game side, is that people don't always make rational decisions. Mm -hmm. So one thing I found really interesting, when I first became aware of economics, there was still sort of the lingering tale of humans make perfectly rational decisions. And my first introduction to uh, the fact that we don't was Dan Ariely and his idea of predictably irrational, Mm -hmm. that we are far more complex and bizarre creatures than we think we are, that people will lie, but only to the point where it doesn't change their internal sense of mm. I'm not a liar. <laughs> like he you know, points out all these mm-hmm. really interesting facts. So one, you're, you're crowdsourcing the future predictions, which makes a lot of sense, which will take into account then all of the different biases and the fact that people are different and you know, they aim at different things. But as you think about at an individual level, how do you bake in the predictably irrational parts of the human psyche? Mm. I actually spend a lot of time asking people how they would feel in different futures. And I have this whole set of emotions. This is not something I write about in the books. So it's kind of fun that you're asking. It's like another tool that I didn't have room for. Um, and we have this whole set of emotions. And we ask people like, okay, can you imagine, you know, we're playing the idea of, of the next pandemic. Let's say the next pandemic, it's not a contagious virus, it's tick-borne. So we would- You freaked me out with that in the book. (laughs) I was like, oh God. Yeah, get ready. We're all gonna be wearing our socks like above our pants and that's gonna be good fashion. So like, get ready to transcend. The the detailed way that you walk people through this alpha-gal- Yeah, alpha-gal crisis. um, Was unnerving given that you did this 10 years ago with the pandemic. So not to derail us from the point you were about to make, but how- accurate do you think that prediction is? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, let's let's follow the chain. I love it. You're like laying out all these breadcrumbs <laughs> for me to follow. I feel like Hansel and Gretel. Okay, so um, I asked people like how, what, can you imagine a time where you might feel embarrassed if you were living in this scenario or a time you would feel proud or a time that you would feel loved or grateful? And we try to create a landscape of stories. You know, it becomes a story that we're all telling together. And it helps me understand what might drive behavior if, if we understand, you know, what are people angry about in this future or what are people grateful for? It really helps you get a much more um, nuanced sense of, as you said, these irrational decisions we make when we were um, playing with pandemics back in 2008 and 2010. We had people wear masks in their everyday lives, mm-hmm. the players we had about 8,000 people. We said, wear these to school, wear these to parties, wear it on public transportation and tell us how it feels. And just based on how it felt emotionally to these individuals and you know, physically what they were reporting, we knew early 
in 2020, it was going to be very hard to convince people to adopt this new behavior, even though it seems so rational, right? So you, so we ask these questions about feelings. That's how we try to bake it in. Um, the alpha gal crisis is definitely uh, so. It's very, I think it's very realistic. I think, you know, we will absolutely be living in a future where more people have been sensitized to the sugar molecule, right? So there's a, already, there's a, a disease, it's called alpha-gal syndrome. It's from being bitten by a tick. It's being bitten by a tick. Is it a, a cousin of Lyme disease? Is it related to Lyme no, disease? No, so. Just same creature that passes it on? Yeah, so the tick has this molecule, the sugar molecule in it, um, and it, it comes from how it, it, you know, from deer and things like that. And it accidentally mixes with your blood. So when it's biting you, it, some of this sugar molecule from the tick gets injected into your bloodstream and your immune system reacts like it's the bubonic plague. Mm. It's really just, a, a, a sh it's literally just sugar. It's something that's in animal products like beef uh, or gelatin. But your body, because it came in this weird way into your bloodstream from a bite, your body says, okay, whenever I see this, we're going full, you know, five alarm fire. And people develop severe allergic reactions to any animal product, not just getting bitten again, but if they, you know, eat a vitamin gummy that has gelatin in it or they, they have some Is it some any meat. animal product or mammals? Mammalian meat products, right. Um, and, uh, but which is in more things than you realize, right? Like a lot of toilet paper that is made with gelatin to be soft, you know? So you have to like literally in this future, you might have people carrying around, you know, like their own toilet paper the way we're, I don't know, carrying around sanitizer now. And we think about these details just to help people imagine it. Will we definitely live in a world where, you know, 10% of Americans have this or more um, already in the United States in the south, the southeastern section. More than a third of people, when you just randomly pick people off the street and test their blood, they've already been bitten and already sensitized. Wow. So, you know, one or two more bites or if they continue to eat a diet that's really high in mammalian meat products, every time you get exposed, it increases your mm. um, allergic risk. So we definitely could l see this. It depends on what we do. Like any future scenario, one of the reasons why we want to imagine it before it happens is maybe we could change it. You know, it's not inevitable that we will continue to change our environment so that tick populations grow. It's not inevitable that we'll eat diets that put us at risk. I mean, there are lots of ways. It's not inevitable that scientists won't, you know, figure out a treatment, right? Um, there are so many pathways to affect this future. The reason we imagine it now is, uh, one, to just prepare ourselves with knowledge. I mean, I, for one, uh, definitely am more conscious about being tick safe just because I, I don't need any more spice in my life right now. Um, and that if it does start to unfold, I won't be shocked. I won't be like frozen in old ways of doing things. I'll be able to adapt faster. Um, but also like to, to lend my support to people who might be trying to prevent this future in any way I can. So, so yeah, it's not inevitable, but I mean, for sure, it's something we should be ready for because it's already happening. These signals of change are already underway. Yeah. So walk me through why it's beneficial to think through this stuff. Mm -hmm. So as somebody that has struggled with anxiety, I know oh. that you can get yourself in a twist 
by rehearsing what I call rehearsing failure. So you're obsessing, like I used to think of it as, well, I'm just planning my escape route. So if I get into a situation, my anxiety goes crazy. Like, how am I going to back out of this? And what I found was, oh, this meeting or whatever I'm about to go in, I'm just thinking of the 30 ways that it could go wrong so that I have an escape hatch for each one of them. But once I flipped a switch and said, I'm just going to let the the disastrous scenario catch me off guard so that I'm only rehearsing <laughs> the success. What you want, yeah. So I'm looking at the 30 ways that it could go right, mm-hmm. making sure that I'm ready for those, that I know how to move in that case. And what it was doing was just literally obliterating mm-hmm. my sort what I call background radiation, my anxieties, my fears. They just they never had a chance to incubate because I wasn't giving them any energy. Now, that means that at some point, I'm going to get totally caught off guard and be like, whoa, I did not see that coming because yes. I've only thought about the good things. But when I think about the dramatic reduction in anxiety that it brought to focus on, yeah. this is going to work, this yeah. is going to be amazing, imagining myself winning, yeah. that was really helpful. But in the book, you explain something, and I bought into it totally, that there actually is certainly in this sort of anti-future shock way, there's a real benefit to thinking through this stuff. Yeah. And I will say, you know, when I first started working in this space, I did not expect people to feel less anxiety mm. by imagining these catastrophes. I actually <laughs> felt bad. I would, you know, I because I'd been making, you know, more traditional video games and I was inviting people who liked my work to come play with these scenarios. I'm like, oh, I'm like, I know it sounds scary, but like, it'll be fun. Trust me. And I didn't know if it would work, but over, you know, more than a decade of doing this, people come out of imagining these scenarios fired up, super empowered. It's part of why I wanted to write this book to dig into the psychology and neuroscience because it doesn't initially seem to make sense. There are a couple key factors to it. And by the way, I say like you it's not enough just to like read about these scenarios or talk about them or like listen to a podcast or watch a show. You will feel anxious. Mm. What changes people's mindset is playing with the scenarios. It's like if you're hungry and you just look at a plate of food, it doesn't help. You have to eat it. <laughs> so you have to actually play with these scenarios. Um, if you just read about them or listen, it, it doesn't have the same transformative effect. But so the first thing, the biggest thing, if you've vividly imagine something and you only need to do it for five minutes so you don't have to you know every day wake up what you know what am I doing to prayer literally you do this one time in your life for five minutes so that your brain is essentially you overcome the normalcy bias and it becomes something your brain believes is possible okay so like one of the scenarios in the book is a government mandated internet shutdown for cybersecurity reasons just turn off the internet for two weeks or four weeks and and governments around the world are doing this now um so how would you prepare for that and you imagine it literally for five minutes okay then just file it away what happens is if you wake up and the future you imagined is now happening instead of being shocked or denying it like this can't be real you know that slows people down they're not able to adapt or act quickly your brain actually has a positive emotion which is pre-recognition your brain says yeah I knew this could happen. Like I was smart enough to take this possibility seriously. And that doesn't mean you were able to prevent it um, or stop it from happening, but it's, it's a positive emotion. It gives you confidence. It gives you a sense of readiness and clarity. And 
to start your process of having to adapt or deal with a crisis or disruption from a state of confidence and clarity rather than anxiety, confusion, feeling helpless. Um, it's, it really changes the way that you emotionally experience things that can create a lot of suffering. So that's one thing. The other thing is that when I have people play with the scenarios, the big thing we focus on is what would you do to help others? Um, also, what kind of help would you need? And it becomes like a matchmaking, right? People are saying like, oh, this would be a problem for me. And I'm like, oh, I have a solution for that. Um, and this is actually an incredible way to build confidence for any situation. We kind of get out of our own head and think about being of service to other people. And that service mentality, that that identifying our skills and our strengths and our values and passions that would you know, help someone else in a crisis, um, that allows us to, to think about these hypothetical possibilities, again, from a position of, of strength, of confidence, of, of being ready, and it gives us more insight into our own strengths and skills that we don't have to wait for an actual catastrophe, right? We might start to get more in touch with the kinds of actions or businesses um, that would be something we could do today. So people tend to leave these scenarios fired up, which is, which is good. And I did not, I did not expect that. It's something I had to watch happen again and again as players participated. And uh, to this day, the alpha gal syndrome, I was just um, saying at, at a book event last night, this is, people love this scenario. And I was really surprised. I thought it might like traumatize people, especially coming out of one pandemic to think of another mm -hmm. pandemic. But what I learned is people want the opportunity to imagine us doing better. We did kind of a not a great job with this pandemic. So they're like, they want to imagine what's what's the next version where everything you know goes goes better. Um, and even the the host of this event, she was like, yeah, I love that scenario too. It was my favorite. So it's like you just don't you you just can't imagine until you actually start imagining how something that seems so stressful could actually make you feel good. But. Talk to me about the degree of specificity. That was mm -hmm. one thing that I found really interesting. Like even with the alpha gal thing in the book, you really go into like, here's how entrepreneurs will react. And I was like, wow, that really is true. Um, and that it was so obviously predictable. Once you start thinking, okay, what would entrepreneurs do? What would moms do? What would businesses do? Like it was really interesting. But you have this like hyper degree of specificity that you encourage people to do. Yeah. Not it's heavy, it's 100 pounds that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, so one technique for bringing specificity to these scenarios is we ask you to just live with it, almost like an augmented reality layer on top of your everyday life. Just in your imagination. Yeah. It's like just like kind of background um, imagination. It's like you, so you might go into a cafe, like a coffee shop, and be like, okay, if we were living in an alpha-gal crisis, what would be different here? You know, are you going to like a backyard cookout? One of the things that I learned in researching this scenario is that if you have this syndrome, just smelling air, airborne meat um, can send you into anaphylactic shock. That is crazy. It's super crazy. So then I start imagining, well, I have lots of friends who like cookout culture is important mm -hmm. to them. So what are they doing on weekends? It, does this become the new social division between people who have to mask up around meat? Or do we adapt? Do we like come up with new new cultures? What's what's the new pregame or the new backyard ritual? 
And we can't, I mean, I can't predict on my own what the specificity would be. But when you have lots of people looking at the things they care about, you know, we did a we did an oil crisis um, simulation years ago, and one of the most enthusiastic participation groups were, was a NASCAR enthusiast. And they were like, we, we have to be able to imagine how the sport could continue even in the absence of traditional fuel. And so if you look at a scenario from what you love, from what you know, what you have your own lived experience or, or expertise with, then you can get specific. And so... Um, for me, you know, I might look at things like running, how does running culture change or how does being a mom change or how does gaming industry react? And so we just, you bring your expertise and suddenly it's not, you know, if, if we're, if we're thinking about it in the abstract, we just have a really hard time, but then it gets, when we bring our own, you know, our whole selves to it, we realize we have so much information about what could change just based on our own wisdom that we bring to the future. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Yeah, one thing that as an exercise I found really interesting in the book and I could see how it would play out well. And in the book, you give three scenarios, if I remember right, and you're like, I want you to spend the next 10 days, two weeks, whatever, actually living it like you were just explaining. But like, okay, hey, you're going to have to wear a mask as you go to the barbecue. What kind of mask do you wear? Yeah. Oh, you wear your favorite football team. Amazing. What does it feel like? Is it rough? Is it smooth? And like, yeah. as you 
what something interesting happens to the brain when you force yourself to keep answering these layers of questions, like the, the visual starts to become real and you can really internalize it versus, so here's an interesting idea. I very rarely talk about this out loud. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. So in business, there's a concept I'm always trying to get young entrepreneurs to understand that emotions will make dots feel like they connect that don't actually connect. Because your brain just sort of smooths it in, fills in the gaps. You imagine like alpha-gal crisis, yeah, I would be fine. I would just avoid the ticks in the woods. But you're not really getting in to understand, no, 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 now they're migrating to the beaches and they're, you know, whatever, 10 times more present than they were. This is not some minor thing, like it's really escalating. And so getting out of emotion and getting into what I tell people to do is journal because you need to be able to write it down in a single sentence. Yes. So that got a reaction. So, ah, Well, yeah, I mean, my favorite technique is journaling from the future. When people ask me, like, what can I do to really benefit from playing with a scenario? Um, I say, well, write a journal entry. You could free write for five minutes, but you have, a, you have a goal. Your goal is to get as many vivid details into mm-hmm. this journal entry as possible. And I want you to score yourself afterwards. I want you to go back and count out, you know, how many, how many visual details, colors, shapes, um, how many auditory details. Were you describing something you could hear? Tactile details. Um, if you were talking to someone, did you write down, you know, the words that came out of their mouth? Um, so you can count up, tally up the number of details the more detailed your journal entry, the more effective it seems to be for increasing your ability to think strategically and creatively about a future and to overcome the normalcy bias, right? If you have three details, like you might need to try again. 30 details, you're done, you're ready. And um, when we really wanna create deep understanding of a scenario, we do have people do it for at least 10 days. So every day for 10 days, take something you're actually doing. Okay, so I'm you know, getting dressed this morning. Okay, what am I wearing in this future that is different from what I would wear today? And how am I making that decision? And how do I feel about it? How do I look? And sometimes people will, you know, it's not just writing. You can take selfies from the future. You can kind of create artifacts. How do you take selfies from the future? Well, um, you know, so one of the scenarios in the book is imagining uh, climate, a mass climate migration, and there's a political movement to be more um, supportive of people who have to move due to extreme heat or drought. Um, and the party, it's called the Welcome Party, right? We should be welcoming. Um, so I just made a T-shirt with Welcome Party on it, and the symbol of this, you know, fictional party is a monarch butterfly. So I'm drawing monarch butterflies on it. And uh, yeah, and you made that up the the symbol and all that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. To help people imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we have we have ideas like you could make a you could take a picture of a monarch butterfly and put it in your window as like a sign to other. It's like a, this is a safe house. Like if if you are I can so tell that you're a game change. developer. This is right. We're looking, so cool <laughs> building the details. And so you know that's one of the skills that I do try to teach in the book is how do you create visual artifacts of the future, symbols, things you can wear, things you can show others. Um, and then, yeah, take photos, put it on social media, start a conversation, or have someone ask you, like, what's the welcome party? Oh, let me tell you about this weird scenario. I'm trying to figure out when I would move, and if I would move, where I would go. And if I had to go, what would I need? And would it be, are there laws to support it? Could I fund, you know, do I, am I ready? Do I have the language skills? Um, and so we create these, you know, 
things that spark conversation. Um, so yeah, you're writing these journal entries and you're, you're doing it every day for 10 days and you're making your artifacts and taking your selfies. And if you do it for 10 days around 10 different things that you know or activities you do or communities that you're a part of, you get this incredibly rich view of a future where you've essentially turned yourself into an expert on this future. Um, and you know, the most, the most people that I've had participate in, in one of these, you know, long form explorations of a scenario was about 20,000. And oh. I would like to see, you know, 200,000 or 2 million and hoping that we start to build this as a skill set and a practice um, because we want people to have deep expertise about the future before it happens, not just, you know, some, you know, futurist nerds who can see it coming. <laughs> so speaking of things that futurist nerds can see coming, let's talk about cryptocurrency. Mm. So the more I look at, so uh, getting into crypto has really reframed my sense of what the future is going to be. Mm -hmm. Ray Dalio has really oh, yeah. formed like what my sense of the future is going to be. And when I put them together, I do worry that we're coming into some pretty rocky times. And so I know you speak very intelligently around cryptocurrency. So as you, one, have you run any scenarios around this? Have you done this kind of gamification around it? Mm. What, what yeah, do you see? Yeah, I mean, look, the future that I'm encouraging people to be ready for is significant government regulation and in government's having their own cryptocurrency alternative. Um, so trying to understand what would a central bank digital currency look like? How would it operate? How what did you incentives? get to, I think, and maybe this is exactly where you're going. So as you try to predict that, what, what are you thinking about in terms mm. of like, what made you think, oh, the governments will run their own? Mm. Well, so, I mean, look, the, the bread and butter of future forecasting is collecting signals of change, right? So it, it's our- From what's already from happening. From what's already happening. It's our raw material. And so, you know, we have this huge database at the Institute for the Future. All of our researchers, we are required, ideally every day, at at least one signal of change that you're seeing, and wow. we look for trends and patterns. Um, so, you know, I mean, one- important signal change is that literally every government that has a sovereign currency is experimenting, is planning. They are looking at it. Um, they have teams tasked with designing a cryptocurrency for the federal government. Another signal that I found absolutely fascinating is China's decision to launch its own national cryptocurrency and to give it away for free. So how do we make this currency popular? How do we start to, you know, we don't, we don't want to just have to ban Bitcoin. We want to entice people to say, I would rather get, I would rather be a part of this ecosystem because the government's giving it to me for free. Right. And they get, they were getting different companies to offer incentives to so use the it. So is digital you want already rolled out? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. I yes. knew that they, it was coming. Yeah. And I knew that they booted Bitcoin, mm -hmm. but I didn't know they'd already rolled it out. Now, and it depends on, you know, what nations do you think will be essentially cultural thought leaders mm. in the coming decades? Um, a lot of nations look to China now as 
as the ideal, you know, able Rising to respond quickly, um, you know, that combination of authoritarian power, but bold, sweeping future visions, you know, they're not trying to go backwards, they're trying to go forwards. Um, if you if you ask just ordinary people in many countries around the world, they'll say, well, we'd rather be like China than like the U.S. So wow. when when a government does something like that there, you know, it, that's an important signal to look at. And, you know, we see the signals growing. The current Biden administration just announced, I think, a couple of weeks ago that they're starting their own development of a central bank digital currency and then the other, you know, why do I think this is plausible? I mean, there's so many cool things, as you know, that you can do with programmable money. It makes sense that governments would want to have this. It's, it's such a more powerful way to stimulate and impact the economy. So if you want to give out cash stimulus, but you don't want people to just save it because you're trying to provoke spending, you can send out programmable money that expires in 30 days, or you can make it location specific. You can only spend it in this region that was hit by, you know, a hurricane or trying to rebuild. Um, there are really cool things you can do with it. You can, you can have money that accrues um, negative interest if you save it, right? So you, let's say you don't want a company like Apple sitting on piles of cash, right? Um, they have, they, it, it gets shrinks instead of accruing interest. It, it gets, you know, you have less money if you're not spending it. So just the fact that you can do so many powerful things makes it seem pretty obvious that governments are going to want to have that power and use it. And they will probably try to regulate the existing cryptocurrency market industry in order to be able to create demand for that, their own product. And I'm not, I mean, it is, there are definitely reasons to be worried about <laughs> such a future. I also think, I mean, I think there's some really cool aspects to it. I mean, I, I could see reasons to be excited for the government having this infrastructure. So we try to keep that balance of positive mm -hmm. and shadow imagination, because if you're only worried about it, then you won't see the reasons why it would happen. And you have to be aware of other people's positive motivations, why they're excited about it, or then you really will be blindsided. You know, this will never happen because it's obviously a terrible idea. Yeah, that, that brings me back to Ray Dalio. So he catches a lot of flack because he's very, um, I mean, he might say just sort of objective, but I'll say he's pretty positive about China and what he's watched them do. And he's always like, you can't judge like somebody else's value system, you can say that it's not yours, yeah. but you can't judge their value system. And it's interesting to see how this will play out around different value systems, yes. how people think about it. Um, it. There is certainly a shadow imagination side to the traceability of yes. what will certainly happen with um, the governments having a digital currency that they can track everything. Like somehow, because of Bitcoin's early, like when it was under, under, under the radar, mm -hmm. people made the mistake of thinking that that was a wise way to do criminal behavior. That's the worst possible way ever. Literally, they can go back and track money from record, 10 yeah. years ago. <laughs> so it, yeah, yeah, that would be really, really absurd. And so, of course, that will be a feature, not yeah. a bug uh, of yeah. anything that governments do, which does make me worry a little, but in terms of value it's, going digital, it's going to happen. And it's, as you said, it's a value system. One of the things I always try to stretch people's imagination around is the competing values of privacy and transparency or accountability. Mm -hmm. We know in China, 
it's not just from from the government. Culture-wide, there's more of a, a value for transparency and accountability. And so when you think, when you look at all the facial recognition technology that's being rolled out there, to a lot of Americans, this sounds like a dystopian nightmare. Mm. But people there will say, well, I feel safer, or there's been positive change. People have changed their behaviors. People in my community, they're, they're better people now. Now, that doesn't mean I, I'm not a supporter of you right. know any, but but the idea that we would never allow that technology to gain a foothold in American society, I think a lot of people believe that they believe that the value of privacy is so strong that we're not going to see mass adoption of this technology, you know, which is a mistake. And one signal of change that I look at here is when um, when law enforcement started using information, the genetic data information from people uploading their their DNA to get their Whoa, ancestry. Oh, I didn't know they were doing this. Oh yeah, that's how they caught that's how they caught the uh, the Golden State killer, you what? know? Yeah, oh I so see you tell me more. Well as somebody who grew up like uh, terrified of all these serial killers who were never caught, I mean I'm actually quite excited that law enforcement now they can go to like 23andMe and they can search for relatives, if they have DNA from a suspect, they can figure out, okay, well, here's somebody, this is like a second cousin, let's look for all of their cousins. And, uh, and they've identified some of the most notorious unsolved, you know, serial killers. How did I not hear about this? I don't know. But for me, it was like, I could finally sleep at night. Uh, I mean, certain, these people live like loom large in, in Mm. my, you know, anxiety. Now, when, when law enforcement first started doing this, there were all of these thought pieces, like opinion pieces about this is, this is uh, an invasion of privacy. People don't expect when they upload their data to, mm. you know, to learn you know, what are my ancestral origins. They don't expect it to turn, be turned over to law enforcement. So there was this sense that maybe there would be a regulation, we would stop this, we would crack down. What they didn't anticipate is how excited so many people would be women in particular, that people who for decades were committing these acts of violence are now brought to justice. Mm. And now imagine living in a world where that kind of criminal activity is no longer possible to undertake in the same way. Again, I'm not saying you know the technology is good or bad, or this is like totally uh, a utopian situation, but if you are blind to why some people might look, you look at it as an invasion of privacy, other people look at it as a relief. Like, thank God, at last, people will be held accountable. We have to hold these competing values in mind, as you said, because the world may decide to go in a different direction. Yeah. And just because privacy has been one of our highest values in the United States for however many centuries now, mm. doesn't mean it will continue. And we have to be really mindful of what people actually feel and what they actually want. And it it might challenge our assumptions. Signals of change, man. You've put words to something that, to your point about future shock and this feeling a bit like the 60s where the changes are suddenly happening at such a radical pace. There are so many signals of change happening right now, some good, some bad. And it will be very interesting to see because if people are dismissing it and they're not looking at it going, okay, this, this is a signal, man. This is not like a, oh, you should or could dismiss this. Mm-hmm. Like it really needs to be the thing that informs how you think through what the future is going to look like. 
So I don't know if you know who Raul Paul is, but he's very um, big in the cryptocurrency world. Okay. He's a macro investor. And he said something, and when I was reading your book, I was like, oh my God, like this is so, you're the missing link between this notion that Raul Paul has. Mm. And so this is what he says is the secret to his success. He says he steps into the future, and then he looks back and says, what would have to have been true yeah. for us to mm -hmm. end up here? Yeah. But the part that's always been missing is how do you step into the future? Mm -hmm. And so your idea of the journaling and the creating details and the really taking these signals of change and like amplifying them and where do they go, um, that allows you to get into the future. And then you can look back and say, okay, either what would we have to do to change this so that we don't end up in this imagined future, but at least you have a sense of what that imagined future is so you can be looking backwards. I think you quote in your book that idea of it's a sad memory that can only be used in the future looking backwards. It's a poor form of memory that only works backwards. That's Lewis Carroll. It's from, from one of his um, Alice in Wonderland. Such stories. a cool yeah. idea. Yeah, and you know, so I think most people are familiar with the term future forecasting. Mm. So we also have this term future backcasting. And it's particularly useful when you have a future that you want to wake up in. You know, I want to wake up in a world where three-day work week is the new norm, let's say. Um, or I want to wake up in a world where cars are banned in Los Angeles. Whatever. You know, we just like, we have a feeling like, I think this would be a great future. Now, we probably want to you know, imagine in detail, look for mm. unanticipated consequences <laughs> to make sure we really want the future. But let's say you've got a future you want. Um, then you do, you backcast and you can go back and do, we do a lot of news headlines from the future where we try to imagine, tell us, you know, each year, what was the pivotal news story that reflects this process of change or this escalation of an idea or a movement or a behavior. And so, yeah, backcasting is really great. It's especially great when you have a future that you want. And um, while I, for whatever reason, I have personally more fun imagining the futures we don't want, that's my sort of jam. Um, I think a lot of people will, will be more inspired and motivated to really articulate those best case scenario futures while I'm over here doing the worst case ones um, and imagining that vividly and then doing this backcasting because it just gives you ideas for what to do. And I would say try to backcast all the way to as far as what could you do in the next 24 hours to make this future more likely. Um, just force yourself to roll up your sleeves and do something to start trying to have an impact mm. on this future. And I'd be so curious to know how that breaks along gender lines. Mm. The whole idea, so reading about the female brain and what's the difference between the male and female You've got, so men, there's no real investment in having children. It's a very, it's the cost of producing sperm. Right. Whereas for women, that's like a real thing. Nine months plus, you know, caretaking beyond that. And I heard it described that females have a detective's brain, mm. which is why they're interested in serial killers. My wife is obsessed. Every time I turn around, <laughs> someone is shrieking, getting stabbed to death on the TV. And I'm like, how do you watch this stuff? Yeah. And that has been anecdotally like a thing in my life where, you know, women will get together and talk about, oh yeah, watching the serial killer show or they just have a real deep fascination with that. And the thought of you, you know, imagining the ways that things could go wrong so that you can backcast mm -hmm. and make sure that we don't end up there. 
I don't know that you would be alone in that. I think that I will, my sort of hypothesis, and who knows if I'm right, but my hypothesis would be that there would be a disproportionate number of women who really want to look at that, mm-hmm. that their mind just gravitates to how do I avoid this bad thing, mm-hmm. uh, which brings a real genius to the equation, because if somebody isn't doing that, then we're really going to be in trouble. You know, I mean, it's a good instinct you have, a good intuition you have when I think about who shows up to participate in these simulations and to play these future forecasting games. There is a slight majority women who show up, so, um, which, which is not true for the field. I mean, the field of future forecasting historically has been predominantly men, but, Mm. um, but when it comes to actually playing these games, we do see, um, a lot of women do. So maybe it's our detective mind. I like that. Yeah. It's interesting. Very interesting. All right. I would be super remiss as somebody. So right now at Impact Theory, we are developing a, I hesitate to call it a video game, but oh. it's so close to that that we'll just for now, we'll round it to that. But I have a very strong thesis that video games in the next three to five years are not going to look like, there, there will still be all the classic games that we have now because they're just amazingly fun. Those will all exist. But there will be this new kind of gaming, a better way to say it, um, that will come out of Web3. And so what makes Web3 interesting to me is what I'll call wallet-aware encounters. So I I need better names for all this stuff because it sounds sort of unsexy. And I think it's the (laughs) coolest thing in the world. Um, But have you read Ready Player One? Of course. Okay, so huge difference between the movie and the book. Mm -hmm. But in the book, he describes what I think this new wave of Web3 gaming is going to be which I will call game-like experiences. So you've got a, even in the book, you've got the sort of battle royale style where we're in a combat zone, we're doing our thing. But then there's, I mean, in the book, it's probably 95% is a non-combat zone and it's all these weird experiences. Somebody builds a, a replica of their hometown and you can go in and if you go in the arcade and you, you know, beat this game, then it opens this door and you go in and you meet this person. And that to me is, where a lot of new style gaming is going to be because I can look at your wallet as technology Mm -hmm. and inside of your wallet will be what I'll call affinity cues. Mm -hmm. So you'll Mm -hmm. tell me what you're into Mm -hmm. just by what you own. Mm -hmm. And so I can see that and I can customize an experience. And then, so that's sort of early phase one, right? So my wife has a book coming up called Radical Confidence Mm -hmm. and we're doing an NFT drop around it. She's got this whole thing in real life. She really does this. Uh, that she calls her bad bitch boots. And so she has struggled with insecurity. And so she found ways to sort of build herself up through her clothes and self-signaling and all this stuff. So we're going to make these 3D boots. And then if you have those boots on, then we can create an experience Mm. for you. You know, Mm. you walk in and, uh, you know, let's say that we create an experience where you meet Lisa and some of her other entrepreneurial friends and you're suddenly in this space and it's game-like, but it's not like you're collecting coins or shooting people Mm -hmm. it's a different kind of Mm. game experience Mm -hmm. but cued off of this thing that you have in your wallets now and the reason that i'm bringing this up to you is rule number one of game design find the fun have you thought through like because you're doing this in real life like in fact i would call these things evoke and the other one that you did as Mm -hmm. sort of game-like experiences yes so again i'm not collecting coins but there there is like a I'm a part of a group. There are more people playing it. We're coming back and we're sharing something. And so there's this sense of, like you said, it's an RPG. Mm. Have you thought at all about sort of where Web3 goes from here and what this looks like? 
Yeah, I mean, my research on Web3 and gaming has been primarily around getting paid to play and what mm. the new economies might be like. Um, so I will start by saying what you describe sounds really interesting. So I will be paying attention to it as a, sig <laughs> a new signal of change and putting it into mm. our Institute for the Future database. So thank you for putting that on my radar. I mean, my own, uh, I would say it was almost 10 years ago, I was doing a big forecast for a Chinese game company. And um, I, the core of my forecast was, you know, in the future, people will expect to generate income from playing your games. And uh, this idea that gamers pay you for your game is going to be completely flipped upside down, that there are going to be incredible revenue streams around gaming and through gaming and, and owning our assets and being, being paid by the game companies for the value that we create. Because most games, the, the real value is from the community of players, the esteem that you give each other, the, the ingenuity and creativity that you bring to these worlds. Um, and so, yeah, like get ready for a totally new financial ecosystem. And they thought it was the most ridiculous idea. <laughs> not, not ridiculous at first, but ridiculous. They're like, we just don't, they're like, game companies would never agree to, we're just not, the revenue's just not going to be shared. It's just not going to happen. And what I think, year was this? I want to say it was like 2015, maybe. Whoa. Whoa. Yes. Wow. Yes. I, need to, I need to be following everything you guys are doing way <laughs> yeah. more closely. That's crazy. Yeah. I don't know how you came to that that fast, but damn. I think I gave a, a talk at the um, RSA conference at Moscone about this, maybe about five years ago, where I was laying out all the, mm. the signals. But so, yeah, for me, that's a real interest. And to think about not just how it changes gaming, but how it changes work. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you can create essentially a basic income for yourself through playing, what kinds of work might you not be willing to do? I mean, it's already hard enough now to get people to do low-wage work. Um, if there are alternatives that are more like things that we naturally have a passion for, we're really going to have to rethink who who does the rest of the work. And um, so it's exciting. I think it's exciting. Um, that's where my research around Web3 um, has been. So have you been paying attention to what I'll call a sort of civil war between traditional gamers and Web3 gamers? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you think is driving that? Because there is so much vitriol. It's insane. Well, I mean, one of the big problems is that traditional gaming is is using this technology to extract more money from players, not to share the revenue with them. And um, so I think, you know, the traditional gaming community sees it as a cash grab rather than trying to innovate for the good of the gaming ecosystem or community. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to sell NFTs to get more money, but it's not a, it's not a, they're not making a, a persuasive case that this is actually going to benefit gamers by participating in this. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the, the friction is right now. It's just, there's, nobody's presented um, with, within traditional gaming uh, a convincing case that, well, if we bring this technology into these communities, that, that it will have 
benefit. So I think so they're thinking that the game companies are using NFTs as a way to be further sort of parasitic, extractive. Yeah, like you know, I mean, game game gamers and game developers have had a, a difficult relationship since in in some ways since the shift to freemium mm-hmm. models where. Um, oh yeah, it's you know free to play, but then they keep trying to get you to pay for more moves or more energy and all these upgrades and access. Um, and there's a sort of nostalgia for the day where I could just buy a game and play it, and I didn't feel like I was constantly someone trying to pick my pocket all the time. And like a, it created a sort of adversarial relationship. I still every time I do an interview and somebody's interested, like we got to talk about game economics. It's so exploitative. Um, people feel really. I, there was this feeling of being abused and exploited by the new game economic models. And so I think that, it's, I mean, it's essentially a kind of trauma that the game industry inflicted on its own community. And so I think it's hard to see clearly if there are opportunities with this technology because so many gamers are used to, I would say, more of a bad faith. And, and, and game companies are moving away from it now. Um, Fortnite was kind of a breakthrough, right, where... Um, yes, you can pay more money, but it doesn't give you an advantage in the game, right? Um, It's more expressive and status, but you can't pay your way to the top. And that felt more fair. It felt like like a a more just economic model. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think we just need to kind of live through fair economies in gaming for this to make sense and build um, any real interest or enthusiasm. Yeah, it's interesting being on the Web3 side of this mm. and being like, oh man, gamers are going to love this because I'm an avid gamer, old school right. gaming, been gaming since Atari. Even still to this day, I game. And I was so smitten with Web3. As soon as I got what it was going to mm-hmm. be, I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And so then really expected, oh, games will be like one of the first places that this is adopted. You mm-hmm. now own your skin and it's yeah. not just, you know, something that you have, but you can't really sell it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you watch enough YouTube videos and you realize, whoa, like there's this real pushback. But from the Web3 side, it's like, I, I get it. Because if you're thinking that this is just going to be a siphoning tool that mm-hmm. the game developers are going to use, and maybe it is, maybe that's what traditional games will do with it, but they will ultimately be supplanted by games on the Web3 side. My only beef is that the Web3 side is approaching it from play to earn instead of play and earn, Yes, which I think is is also going to have its moment of like where we watch game economies collapse in on itself. And there has to be an intrinsic value to the game to be sustainable. I want to I want to I want to make money playing my favorite games, not some weird new system. You know what I want to say? Um, I think the w- one of the biggest problems where uh, this like movement is shooting itself in the foot accidentally with gamers is the how the idea of a metaverse, a singular metaverse where you can have interoperability, mm. really sounds naive to game developers because... It is you know, naive. we don't want. Yeah, like, I don't want you bringing your Fortnite weapons onto my Animal Crossing island. What am I supposed <laughs> to do? Do you know what I'm like? Okay, you're you yeah. got it. I think that's another. It's like it from a. It's not just from a technological standpoint. It's from a cultural social standpoint. We don't actually want interoperability of all of these Web three assets in the sense mm-hmm. that we don't like. You may design things that I don't want to exist in my 
experience. So getting back to what you're creating, you know, this idea that in my wallet, you'll have my affinities and you'll know me. So you know not to bring any weapons onto my island. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like a much more plausible way to get to a future where we do see that integration of of the gameful experience with with Mm -hmm. this tech. Yeah. So I think one thing that's going to happen is So it's what I call the metaverse archipelago. Mm. So Mm -mm. right now, and the bet that we're making is that it's going to be Unreal Engine. Mm -hmm. And you've got a bunch of people in the Web3 space developing games inside of Unreal Engine. And that, um, if they do what I'm talking about, these game-like experiences, then you've really got a shot. Because there's parts of the game that don't require weapons, so we don't have to worry about balancing and things like that. Um, but if you're just walking around the, the experiential side of the game, then you've got your consistent identity, which yeah. I think will be a big thing. Jane, I could talk to you about this stuff forever. We will talk about it again. I think let's I would stay in conversation because I'm excited about what you're doing. Absolutely. So I'm going to now be obsessively following every word out of your mouth, given your ability to predict the future. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> uh, where can other people do the same? Mm, so besides the book, which is called Imaginable, we also just opened at the Institute for the Future our first public center for social simulation and imagination training. It's called Urgent Optimists, plural, because there's a bunch of us, .org. And you can come and get a new scenario every month and play these games with me and find other people reading Imaginable and work through the games and scenarios together. I love it. Guys, she's helping us all predict the future. I can't say anything more powerful than that in terms of reasons to go read the book. Following her, you will be richly rewarded. And speaking of things that will reward you, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.